welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Our guest today is director Sonia Desai, who is directing The Great Celestial Cow by Sue Townsend, running through April 28th here at the Murphy School. Sonia, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. It's lovely to have you, and it's been lovely to have you here for the last month or so, month and a half. Uh, working on uh, Sue Townsend's great play. Um, let's start off, though, uh, not about the play, but let's just talk a little bit about you, if you don't mind, uh, to begin with. Where are you originally from, um, uh, and uh, and how in the world did you end up here? Well, I actually was born right here in the Raleigh-Durham area and moved away and kind of my family traveled a lot. Um, we lived in France and England, wound up in Texas of all places. Mm-hmm. And currently I'm in LA and I've been in California for the past seven years, uh, first getting my PhD and now teaching. But born in the Raleigh-Durham area. Mm-hmm. And how, how long were you here before you moved to Rome? I was, uh, until I was six. So you had done some of the school system here. You I made did. a few friends. And I did. That sort of thing, yeah. I went to Farmington Elementary, which yeah. I don't know if it still exists. I've never heard of it, uh, but uh, maybe. Um, so question then about uh, what, uh, uh, what led you uh, overseas? What, what were your parents doing that, uh, that caused you to travel quite so much early on? My dad is a software engineer. So in the 90s, we had the big tech boom and everybody was expa- expanding their companies. And so we yeah. went overseas for that. He was a marketing director of some software-related thing. That's great. Uh, That's terrific. Uh, So you got to see a lot of different cultures and things like that. Uh, You were Indian uh, by heritage, but not by birth. Uh, uh, Were were your parents from India originally, or one of your parents? Yeah, so my parents were both born overseas. My dad was born in India um, and raised there and came over here for grad school, actually, so spent most of his um, growing up years in India. My mom's actually from Africa, Uganda. There's a very large Indian population in Africa um, because of colonialism. (laughs) And um, they went there to work. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, to actually uh, came, they were brought over as indentured servants to work the railroads. And so her family has been there for generations. As we did with the Chinese uh, uh, citizens with our railroad system. And so was she there during the Idi Amin years Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing? Is that why she left the country? It was, yeah. Yeah. She, uh, her and her families were refugees when she was about 16. Stab in the dark there. uh, (laughs) Exactly, yeah. logical, yeah. It sure is. And you've you've heard stories of that uh, time, I'm sure, from her. That that must have been a a dark period for her and for many other people as well. Um, but you finally get back to the United States, and mm-hmm. are you in high school then or college? I was in middle school. Middle school? Yeah, last year's middle school and um, then high school, and I actually went to a math and science high school. I thought for the longest time I was going to be a medical doctor, Okay. and theater was always something that I w- enjoyed going to but never thought I could be a part of until right. college. Right. And how did that happen? Did a light bulb come on in your head or did you, was, did you have a great teacher or what, what happened to cause that? A little bit of both. Uh, I had been exposed to Shakespeare when I was in England and fell in love with it at a very young age. Yeah. Um, and I was just taking college electives, came across this Shakespeare through performance course with an amazing professor, James Lolan. And I thought 
why not? I have extra space, I'll take this class. And then discovered, oh, <laughs> this is amazing, yeah. and I want this to be my whole life now. And, and that was at Cal Irvine, is that right? Uh, this is actually at University of Texas in Austin. Ah, okay, right. Uh, so your undergraduate years mm -hmm. were at UT Austin, right? Yes. And you originally went there to study math and science. Mm -hmm. uh, and then did you change majors, or did you finish with the... I did. I did change majors uh, really late on. Actually, my junior year, I became an English major. Uh -huh. So I stayed an extra semester to finish off all of the other credits. The requirements, yeah. yeah, yeah. How was that program? Did you enjoy working there? I loved it. That department is so amazing, and it's very friendly for theater. What did you do? What sort of things did you do other than the classwork? I uh, was a part of a theater troupe called Foot in the Door Theater. Uh -huh. That was um, the Liberal Arts Honors Theater Troupe, and we put on plays. I got to put on The Changeling by Middleton and Rowley, yeah. um, which was really fun. And it just has a lot of opportunities for student theater. There right. are so many just amateur student theater groups on that campus, right. and we all go to each other's plays. And I just, you know, would come up and I'd be like, I want to try my hand at directing. And they're like, yeah, sure, do it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So that was really amazing. And there was space available to, to rehearse and perform yeah. as well. We yeah. had all these tiny classrooms that we would rehearse in, and I yeah. think we ended up performing in a lecture auditorium or something. So Shakespeare, backing up to your time in England, what was it about Shakespeare that, that particularly interested you, do you think? Or do you have a, a memory that goes that far back? I do. It was fourth grade, and my teacher was just this amazing woman. And at the end of the day, if we had finished all of the work that we needed to do, she would read The Tempest to us. Uh -huh at the very end of the day. And then after we had gone through The Tempest, she took us to see a production of it in London. Yeah, where and do you remember where, where it was? I can't or? remember where it was. Uh, I just remember it being one of the most exciting things I've ever had a chance to see. Yeah. And I loved it. And I loved those afternoons of just having finished all of our work and getting to listen to her read The Tempest aloud. You don't remember what year it was, do you? Ooh, um, 97 maybe? Uh -huh. Well. There was a there was a tempest uh, around that time at the Barbican, uh, which is where the uh, RSC was uh, in re often in residence uh, with Simon Russell Beale as Ariel. I, I wonder if that. I was wonder your, uh, it might have been. He was a very he's a very large man, and he's <laughs> not your a common a Ariel. And he did it in flowing sort of Japanese robes and things, and so they created a costume that suggested the lightness that is often physically personified by uh, by that character. So uh, so then um, flash forward to, to UT, and uh, you're uh, studying uh, sh uh, Shakespeare and other things, I imagine, there. Um, then you uh, get ready to move on to the next phase in your career, and this is a place where sometimes uh, directors uh, will uh, will move into the world of directing, but you chose to go in and get an MFA at that point, and that was at Cal Irvine. Is that yes, right? so I actually uh, went straight into my PhD from there uh -huh. um, at the University of California, Irvine. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. I always I knew I loved directing, but I also knew that I loved teaching and I loved academics, mm -hmm. and so the goal for me was always to be able to be at a university teaching and working with students. And you have a special set of um, directions that you chose for your PhD. Can you talk a little bit about those those slightly disparate uh, fields? Uh, um, so I did my PhD on the representation of gender and Shakespeare. Yeah. And well, early modern theater in general. Right. 
So it was really great because I got to study two things that I love, which is gender studies and queer theory and Shakespeare yeah. and Renaissance drama right. and kind of like bring those two things together on my own terms, which was really fun. Right. So, uh, so how does it fit together? How do, how do those, two thing, those two ideas, uh, uh, theater from that era and uh, gender studies fit together in your mind? Is it, is it about just simply understanding and describing the ways in which genders were represented uh, on stage? Or is it about the political underpinnings of that or what what is what is the uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about it I guess is my question <laughs> it's totally about both um, so I think one of the reasons I think it's so important to study our understandings of gender and representation from that time is we call it the early modern period for a reason mm -hmm. it's really the start of all of our modern conceptions that we have in the West that's where all these things kind of started first cementing and becoming a part of our cultural awareness. Why? Um, I think so. Around that time, it's also called the Renaissance, we had this kind of new upsurge of arts and science and technology. Uh, the printing press started around that time, so mm -hmm. people are disseminating information at a rate that has never happened before. Right. And so that's kind of where culture can become tangible is through things like books and pamphlets that you get that you can send across countries even right. so i think that that's a really fruitful time for society and it's important to look at that and see where did all of the things that we think now come from mm -hmm. and i think a lot of that can be seen on the stage during that time so you're uh, you're not just saying this is how it was presented but this is why it was presented as well can you give us an example of that i'm curious a, sure. a, a sort of a tangible example sure so one of my um favorite plays is as you like it yeah. and by Shakespeare, <laughs> just in case no one. We've done it here. Oh, yeah. good. I yeah. love that play. Yeah. Um, so in that play, we have a cross-dressing heroine, Rosalind, who when they go into exile in the forest, she decides, okay, I'm going to dress up as a man. Mm -hmm. And she has this great speech right before she actually um, does the transformation where she talks about doing the transformation. And she talks about the ways in which she will turn into a man and those ways are very reflective of our societal understandings of masculinity mm -hmm. and of how it's innately a performance. She says, um, she starts off by saying that it's because she, because she's so tall, it'd be good for her to dress as a man. She'll have a boar spear and uh, axe to represent the kind of like violence that is associated with masculinity. And she's going to um, pretend to be brave even though she's going to be scared, which is something that most men do, is the idea. Yeah. And so from the beginning, we get this discussion of gender that is based in performance yeah. and is based in the everyday performances that people do, not just the stage performance. So do you, th do you think that um, uh, Shakespeare, in this case, was trying to to support the idea of masculinity in that way? Or do you think he was, he was merely commenting on it? Or what was he up to? So I wish I could ask him. But <laughs> in my understandings, um, in my readings of Shakespeare's plays, I get a really innate skepticism, uh -huh. particularly of masculinity. Yeah. And this applies, I think, through even like the tragedies that we see. I mean, I think that one of the tragedies of Othello is this balance between 
masculinity and the domestic that is represented by femininity. Mm -hmm. And we see all of these homosocial bonds between the male characters that lead to destruction. So we see it in Othello, we see it in Much Ado About Nothing, which is a comedy, but the turn in that play is based on a homosocial relationship between two men that is privileged over a heterosexual relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I, the plays themselves like as a whole really to me speak about a skepticism about this performance of masculinity. So let's go a little further with that. How did it get to be that way? Um, you know, I, I buy the argument that in this time frame that there was a, a solidifying of these ideas and a, a sort of a quantifying them uh, in, in tangible ways that could then be uh, extended into the future today and mm-hmm. maybe even further and but uh, but why did it get that way why didn't it uh, take shape in a different form do you think uh, over the development of the human species well i mean i think we still look to the art that was created in that time as kind of the pinnacle of you know western art production right, right. And because it's the first that was written down in any tangible way really yeah, yeah. But but why did the ideas that were that were solidified then develop over the centuries leading up to that? What what I mean that's a really big question, <laughs> but you must have some thoughts on that. I too. do. So that's around the time where we start getting this hierarchy, um, where there's always been a division of labor, um, but that labor was not always hierarchical, and that you know mm-hmm. domestic labor was not as important versus labor that happened outside the house. Yeah. And around that time, we get that. And a couple of interesting things, I think, are happening around this time. Um, There is the possibility of women having more freedom because things like marketplaces are being introduced, so women have to venture outside the house. And they have a space in which... You can't just sit in a cave and wait for the men to bring the the, the kill of the day. Right, and no longer are people just you know, on individual farms even, right? You're not, we're urbanizing. So it was sort of safer in a way. It was getting safer for Mm -hmm. for women to to participate in the world, I think. Right, which can be dangerous and anxiety provoking (laughs) um, for the male counterparts that are scared of what that might do and how that might upset their role and their place. Sure, we're seeing it with digital, the digital revolution too, I think. because uh, muscle is is of less mm-hmm. uh, value. I mean, there's still plenty of things that require muscle in order to do, but those things are being hierarchically uh, pressed downward, right. I think, and, and these jobs that require more uh, intellect and um, uh, dexterity of social skills, communications is... Uh, is kind of elevating as well. So it does feel like a comparison to today is, uh, is appropriate there. Um, and um, when, you, when you did that work, uh, that PhD work, um, how did you go about it? What, uh, what was the process? Uh, I'm just curious, uh, was there research involved? Was it about interviewing people? Was it about practicing uh, the things that you were studying? What was it, there were all of those things? It was a little bit of all of those things. Um, there were there was years of research that you know continued right up until the very end, where once new articles come out, you need to read those articles and see how you can yeah. include them. So it was lots of just pure research. I also did get a chance to um, conduct some interviews yeah. with actors that have been part of kind of gender bending versions of Shakespeare, of um, other early modern plays, mm-hmm. to get a sense of 
how did you interpret that experience? What was that experience like? Um, and I also got a chance to direct As You Like It and Twelfth Night while I was in the process mm -hmm. of doing my dissertation. So I was able to pull from that as well. As, and I also included some kind of like production criticism uh -huh. as a part oh, of it. I see. Uh, things you went to see. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a, an As You Like It um, a Cheek by Jowl did oh, uh, back in the 90s. I wish so. I had a chance to see. I've written about you it know, quite this, extensively. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it came to BAM, to the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Exciting. when I was living up there. And, uh, and there was a moment, there's a place in the text, and I can't remember the exact line, but where, very early on where someone says something sort of like uh, this will be the men and this will be the women and, and the, the actors who were all male and wearing black uh, pants and white shirts, you know, like a, every other, you know, sort of high school production of the play ever done, you know, they just separated on stage. Mm -hmm. They just walked to their respective sides of the stage and you could hear the audience go, okay, uh, yeah. got it, uh, you know. Right? And from that moment on, they completely accepted the, the conceit of the thing. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I have one more little story to tell, yes, if you don't please. mind me intruding on your podcast no, for a moment please. here. Uh, when we did As You Like It, our director, Mark Such, who, who teaches uh, at uh, um, uh, Davidson College down near Charlotte, uh, uh, he had this wonderful idea for a moment in it. Uh, there, there's the old uh, servant uh, character, the really mm -hmm. old guy who at one point goes off into the woods looking for his young master who's disappeared. And, and he doesn't really have much more to do in the play, okay. uh, although he does appear and he's very, it appears that he's very sick and he's about to die and stuff. But Shakespeare kind of leaves him hanging yeah. there. But uh, Mark had the actor playing that role double with Jaques. Uh, oh, interesting. And so when he made his re-entrance as the old man. He had an, a really long old woolen coat on and as he walked very, very slowly across the stage, he kind of let the coat fall away and by the time the coat had dropped to the floor, he was delivering the seven ages of man speech. How cool. It just sent chills down my spine yeah. and that was not gender uh, focused, but it was age. It was like something yeah. about, there was something about age in that moment that I, I, as I looked at it, I thought, has anyone ever done this before? Yeah. And, and is it what the play is? You know, I don't know. I love those kind of moments of discovery right? in plays. Yeah. So, um, so you finished about a year ago, your mm -hmm. PhD, you uh, are now a doctor. Uh, you have kept very well hidden from, <laughs> uh, from most of us, uh, lest, lest we call you uh, uh, Dr. Desai. <laughs> but um, uh, you're teaching now, mm -hmm. you're teaching at a college uh, at uh, Marymount, is that right? Yes, at Loyola Marymount University in LA. In LA, yeah. So you're living in LA as well, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and when you got this email from uh, this uh, artistic director in North Carolina, what did you think? What, what went through your head? Well, I was thinking, oh, time to go home. <laughs> ah, okay. um, and also just, I'd heard great things about this theater. Oh, and okay. I wanted to try something that was outside my comfort zone. Yeah. You know, I've been doing Shakespeare for so long, and yeah. the dissertation becomes your whole life when yeah. you're in grad school. Right. And so I thought, it's time for kind of some fresh air. Yeah. Something different, and and you had not read that this play before the, uh, we sent it to you about a year ago. I guess no, I hadn't had a chance yeah. to read it. I've never even heard of it before. Do you remember your first impression of it when you read it? Oh wow! Um, let me think. The very first thing I thought was, "This is different," and I 
immediately went into director mode and I started jotting down, oh, what about this or what about that? <laughs> and I still have, I'm using the same notebook that I had sure. then. And so I think I still have those things yeah. where it's just like crazy ideas of, oh my gosh, you could do this in this moment or you could do that. And then what about this whole thing? And How many so, of them made it into the production? Or um, did any of them? <laughs> very few. I was talked out of several of them uh-huh. as, you know, this is too conceptual or just weird. And well, you realize we didn't have hydraulics here in the theater. <laughs> I did. Right? There was a moment where somebody had to be like, this isn't Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> and I was like, but wouldn't it be cool if it were? <laughs> We've taken a couple of stabs at that. Too. <laughs> yeah, we in fact we did a, a Shakespeare on trapeze a few years That's ago. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it was it worked really well too. It was a very strong production. Um, so um, so uh, the play itself. What is it about uh, the Great Celestial Cow? I mean, it's it's possible that I could have sent you a play that you didn't like and didn't want to spend right. you know, a year of your life working on. <laughs> what, I, so I assume there were things about it that appealed to you. What what. Uh, what appealed to you about this play? Absolutely. So when I first, the other, like, when I had a chance to sit with it, the thing that really stood out to me were the connections that I could make to my family story. Mm-hmm. My mom, as you said, was, um, you know, a refugee, and they went to England in the 70s right. and had to completely adapt. And I have heard, I've grown up with these stories. I've grown up with the stories of what it means to do that, to make that move, to have that change. And I actually have a lot of family who stayed in Leicester after that. They immigrated exactly to Leicester and I've been to visit them. And so I grew up running around Leicester Square and being a part of this, these extended families that do live in, you know, this small semi-detached house, the grandfather and grandmother. And so it just spoke to me. Um, and I really also related to Bibi, and she has these great moments, especially in her monologue, of talking about this idea of like the culture clash and how that seems to be the only thing that can define you yeah. as a woman, as a like Indian woman growing up not in India. Right. People always see like, oh, this must be your story, and you're like, there's more, you know. And her, one, some of her final lines in that monologue are like, I'm healthy, I'm educated, I'm gonna make a life for myself. And I love that feeling. Is there a is there a sense of uh, either or when you're growing up in that kind of with that, with those kinds of pressures on you that you that you feel like you're always making a decision to ch- to choose the Western idea or to choose the non-Western idea? Oh, absolutely, and it's hard to do that, especially as you're young, because you don't have the tools to deal with it yet. Yeah. You know. I, I remember so distinctly, like when I was young, not so much when we lived in England, because I was surrounded by family, but definitely when we moved to Texas, of just feeling like, why can't I just be quote unquote normal? Like, why don't I fit in? Why am I not, why don't I have the same language that these other classmates have? And that was difficult. I did so much to try and push down my Indian heritage at that Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. that I look back and I just think, what were you doing? Why didn't you want to wear things like kurtas, you know, and stuff like that? That's what everybody was doing back then, everybody who wasn't part of that standard. I took such pride in being told, like, you're the whitest Indian person I know. Mm. And I just, I look back and I'm so ashamed, but at the same time, I'm... I learned, it you know. Have, it probably couldn't have been any other way, too. Yeah. You know, as you say, you weren't equipped to do it, and uh, I'm sure your parents weren't either, really. Yeah. And they didn't understand um, so much of what I was going through yeah. because they did grow up 
in such an Indian environment and such a supportive, like culturally environment. And the West was so foreign to them. I mean, there's so much about my experience that they didn't understand, including now, you know, where they're like, why don't you, why aren't you married? Like, why don't you want to get married? And mm -hmm. just, there's so much about my life that it's hard to communicate with them that I felt like I was navigating a lot on my own. Yeah, sure. And I think everybody was. The, the fact that we've been able to open up uh, these conversations is inevitably good, I think, mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, it is ironic that um, this play was first produced by uh, the uh, joint stock uh, theater company, uh, which was run by Max Stafford Clark, uh, who was one of the first, uh, I don't think victims is quite the right word, but one of the first people who fell to the uh, uh, Me Too movement, <laughs> you know, <laughs> apparently for good reason mm -hmm. from what I've heard, but, uh, but he did, you know, put put on this play when yeah. nobody else would do it, you know, uh, which I think is uh, uh, just really, really interesting. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a, I'm always interested in those dichotomies, mm -hmm. you know, of human nature, <laughs> you know, the ways in which uh, people seem to uh, find some good thing in themselves, even if mm. they're not, you know, finding it all the time or whatever. Mm. But anyway, what do you want to tell the audience uh, before we wrap up our podcast today about The Great Celestial Cow or about the production or about your experience here in North Carolina? Well, I'd say that I'm really proud of the work that the cast and crew have done on this play. And it's been such a collaborative effort. Yeah. I could never have imagined this particular production yeah. like even from my initial conceptions to when i was starting rehearsal the idea of i had for this play was very different from what we ended up with because it has a bit of everyone who worked on it in it right. and i'm really proud of that and i think that we created an environment where people felt comfortable to bring me suggestions that i was like yeah i would never have thought of that let's do that let's incorporate that mm -hmm. so i think it really has been a community effort so i'm very proud of that and I would like people to know that even if you don't think you have something in common with these characters, you do. You have something in common. You with have these something characters. in common with these characters. It's not possible to stand on the land uh, that that is called the United States of America and not have some relationship to the story. We Absolutely. To, whether we uh, in, insist otherwise or not. <laughs> what, what's next for you? What uh, what happens after uh, you leave uh, on Sunday? Well, I continue teaching. Um, and so I'm teaching, finishing up the semester, um, teaching over the summer as well. And I'm teaching a Shakespeare on stage and film course in the oh, fall. Lovely, lovely. Uh, and hopefully directing a Shakespeare play, possibly in the summer. At the college or yes. elsewhere. Oh, that's yes. very nice, very nice. Uh, we'll make sure you include my uh, uh, Kenneth Bronagh's Henry V in that class. That's oh, my, it's my, my favorite. Is it really? It okay. is. Oh, it's absolutely my I'm favorite. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, <laughs> um, very good. Well, thank you, Sonia, again, uh, for all the work over the last year that you've done for us uh, and for this play. Uh, we appreciate it very much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you down the road. Thank you. Thank you for this amazing opportunity. It's been such a pleasure. We will open The Great Celestial Cow by Sue Townsend Thursday. That's April 11th uh, here at Burning Coal Theatre Company and run three weeks through April 28th. Tickets can be obtained at burningcoal.org or by giving us a ring at 919-834-4001.